You're listening to the Ottoman History Podcast. To find out more about today's topic or check out some of our other episodes, along with maps, images, documents, and other materials related to the history of the Ottoman Empire and the modern Middle East, visit us on the web at ottomanhistorypodcast.com. Good afternoon and welcome to another episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. My name is Nicholas Danforth. I'm delighted to be here this afternoon with Sarah Neal Smith, Assistant Professor of Art History at the Maryland Institute College of Art in Baltimore. Good afternoon, Sarah Neal. Great to be here. Thanks for having me, Nick. Thanks so much. Uh, We're going to be talking about a number of things focused on the relationship between art, modernity, democracy, uh, and specifically the figure of Bulent Ejevet in 1950s Turkey. Yeah, an, an intriguing figure indeed, and actually a figure who um, was kind of the starting point and the core of a lot of uh, my own research. A figure who um, we typically think of as a statesman, actually. I mean, three-time prime minister of Turkey is probably what he's best known for, uh, a stint as minister of labor as well, but actually in the 50s was uh, highly, highly active in the cultural realm as a gallerist uh, and an art critic as well. This is kind of a lost chapter in Ejevit's, uh life. So before we jump into all the interesting connections between the various aspects of Ejevit's career, why don't you just give us a little bit more background about who he was? Yeah, yeah. So he didn't uh, kind of hit on this conjunction of, of art and politics uh, by accident. He's kind of a, a middle-class guy from Ankara who um, was uh, from a middle-class family, but a family quite rich in, I guess you could say, cultural capital. So his mother, for example, was one of the first women to attend the Istanbul Fine Arts uh, Academy. His father dabbled in politics. Ejevit himself went to the elite Robert College in Istanbul, where he was highly proficient in English at a very young age um, and in, and uh, very active in writing poetry and translating several uh, in, important Western poets from Ezra Pound to uh, T.S. Eliot. Um, so he's really a, a kind of trained uh, young humanist at a very early age. And now, as some of our listeners know, the 1950s were a moment of profound change in Turkey. Uh, In 1950 itself, Turkey had its first uh, fully democratic election. There was a peaceful transfer of power, and all of a sudden, the Republican People's Party, which Ejivit himself was a part of, uh, which had ruled the country as a one-party state since its foundation, was in opposition. At the same time, Turkey, with the onset of the Cold War, found itself in a new relationship with the United States, which had a number of economic, political, and cultural uh, influences on the country, some of which directly touched on Egypt's career, as we'll discuss. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about what Egypt was up to at this moment where his political career really came into its own? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I think this moment of transition that you just described so well, Nick, was uh, very much also seen as a moment uh, where the question of how democracy, how Turkish democracy should function uh, was the kind of uh, issue in the air. That was a transition seen as a move from an authoritative top-down system uh, under under Ataturk's tenure uh, to one where a multi-party democracy was put into place. Um, but the question of how that should work uh, was really crucial. And some of uh, the ways that Ejevit came around to thinking about that question involved things like founding an art gallery or writing art criticism. And that's what seems so fascinating about this era as we look back on it from today. Uh, Many of these questions that when you read media reports about Turkey, they make it sound like Turkey is discussing for the very first time questions about democracy, how it works, what it means to be a democratic society. 
were actually debated quite uh, thoroughly in the 1950s, and Edgevit was certainly one of the most articulate voices in those debates. Yeah, I think uh, when we look at, for example, he uh, had what he described as a tripod of activities that he did, he conducted, he undertook that made up his life while he was living in Ankara in the 50s. The first one was his main job in Ankara, which was to be a weekly columnist for the newspaper Ulus, a very important newspaper at the time. Um, he also founded this art gallery that I keep mentioning uh, called Helicon Gallery, the Helicon Gallery, uh, a gallery that... Uh, took its name from the Helicon mountaintop where the Greek muses of Greek myth supposedly resided. So uh, Ejivit gave this name to his gallery to indicate that it would be a sphere of inspiring activity in all of the arts. Um, And then a third leg of that tripod that he described was uh, his work as a co-founder of an important political journal called Forum, which was designed specifically to bring together competing political stances and competing political views with the impulse to embody the uh, principles of dissent and debate understood to uh, function under this new multi-party system. So uh, what we see happening in, in the kind of constituent pieces of Ejivit's life in Ankara in the 50s is this uh, very close imbrication of his political thought and his work in the cultural realm. How did that actually connect up to something like a gallery? Uh, He described his gallery as a place where uh, citizens would come into their own. He thought that the process of viewing art, of having a kind of individualized experience um, of encountering art, would encourage independent thought. And that that type of independent thought is precisely the type of thought that is required uh, for a a kind of democratic citizen uh, to pursue their kind of individual uh, opinions uh, in a sort of larger collective, I guess you could say. And it's interesting. We always think of Edgevet now as being, I mean, he was a left-wing figure. Uh, But there's also a financial side of this, right? He had an argument about how the free market actually fits into democratization. Yeah, an argument again that he made with uh, in connection with the way he expected visitors to his gallery to be acting, um, and he expected them to be purchasing artworks and taking them into their homes. So the idea here being that they are enacting that kind of individual uh, will, they're using their sort of purchasing power, um, bringing these artworks that embody the principles of kind of individual expression or individual uh, interpretation into their homes, and therefore continuing this cycle of both consumption and uh, sort of inculcation of these basic principles of, of individual expression. And it's, of course, it's also very interesting because we, at the same time, think of Edgevit as someone who, because of his left-wing politics, often found himself later during his political career at odds with the United States, critical of Turkey's relationship with the United States, critical of uh, American imperialism in the world. And yet when you read what he writes in the 50s, he was clearly in some ways seems very interested in or engaged with an idea of modernity that's connected to the free market, connected to liberalism in a way that would have been very familiar for 1950s American liberals uh, and that, I wonder, did that in any way reflect his experience actually in the United States during that time period? 
Yeah, so you refer to uh, his experience in the United States. He did uh, spend uh, two different uh, periods of time in the U.S. One, as a visiting journalist at the Winston-Salem Sentinel in North Carolina, and another uh, as a uh, visiting uh, student at Harvard University later in the 50s. Um, How much of his uh, thinking about uh, U.S.-Turkish relations was directly impacted by those particular visits is a little bit hard to tell. What is clear is that uh, he and the kind of cohort of thinkers with which he was involved uh, at Forum Magazine in particular um, saw kind of an idea of liberalism um, as linked with a certain set of principles that they were very interested in promoting, including tolerance, freedom of thought, the importance of a free press. So uh, it's a little bit difficult to separate out uh, where uh, they were interested in kind of economic uh, models of liberalism versus ones that, again, came, uh, uh, functioned at a slightly higher level, almost of of abstract thought uh, around what, what is required as conditions for democracy. Right. And here, Edge of It was a product of this Kamalist tradition, a product of the idea of westernizing reform that Ataturk was so famous for. And yet at the same time, where now Ataturk has obviously been criticized for being, for pursuing this idea of reform in a very top-down authoritarian way, Ejivit suddenly found himself as an heir to this tradition at a moment where Turkey had become democratic and he had to try to figure out how to, in a sense, liberalize this tradition, how to make the vision of reform, the vision of westernization uh, that had been imposed on the people before to really sell it to the people, to make it one that they would embrace voluntarily and that would therefore enable his political party to win elections. Right. And even before, and this is what's so interesting about looking at his work in the cultural realm in the 50s, uh, even before Ejavit is formulating his ideas of halkçılık or sort of populism, uh, even before he's issuing explicit critiques of uh, of this kind of Kemalist model, um, he's really arguing um, that... Turkish citizens, and actually in particular artists above all else, really need to demand the government's recognition of their individuality as free-thinking citizens. And this is uh, what's so fascinating, is that it's through recourse to the idea of the artist, um, to the idea of the writer, that he starts to argue for the necessity uh, for a a popular voice to be expressed. Um, And in turn, uh, I think he very much saw his creation of this gallery in Ankara, Helikon Galerisi, as uh, a realm in which uh, those uh, those cries for attention and for full recognition as as uh, as citizens could take place. And as I understand it, up until this point, most of the art, most of the cultural production in Turkey had been very directly sponsored by the government, and as a result, had been under the government's control. Yes, absolutely. Uh, the the Kemalist uh, political structure had a huge impact on. Uh, the types of education artists were able to receive, the types of content that uh, was approved of more generally. Um, and indeed, Ejevit is actually far from uh, alone in his sudden interest in opening a gallery or writing art criticism. There's actually a huge upsurge in uh, individual independent uh, exhibition spaces in the 1950s in art criticism. Uh, artists like Bedrami Eyuboğlu uh, is writing art criticism. Cemal Tolu is writing art criticism in Ankara, in Istanbul. Um, 
uh, Adelaide Jimjo's is opening up the first art gallery in 1950 called Gallery Maya. Um, so this is part of a much wider kind of opening up uh, of the art world into all sorts of new institutional and critical uh, discursive forums as well. Maybe you can tell us a little bit more about the art itself. Yeah. Uh, Helicon uh, really, and, and Edge of It really was a champion of abstract art in particular. And this is, um, in many ways, not surprising. This is a story that is uh, probably familiar to uh, many in, in a, let's say, an American context. We're used to uh, hearing about the ways that Jackson Pollock or abstract expressionism was promoted by the CIA as embodying these principles of uh, individual expression and freedom from ideology. And of course, it's paradoxically the huh. incredibly ideologically laden. Um, but this idea that abstract art is the most pure, uh, boiled down version of an individual's self-expression. And I think it's absolutely no accident that those are the the modes of art making that Ejevit is choosing and his collaborators at Hedekon are choosing to show there are primarily Turkish artists uh, working uh, in abstract painting. This is clearly also tied up with ideas about modernity too, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, the question of is there a Turkey-specific uh, version, uh, not just of modernity, but uh, of modernism, of our uh, really? artistic idioms, um, it, it sort of haunts all of this in the background. And is there? <laughs> that, that's a that's a that's a question I refuse to answer. <laughs> Did Edgevit think there was? Edgevit wrestled with the question of whether there was a there were culturally specific modern art traditions or not. On the one hand, uh, he lauded American folk art and quilt making really? because he saw quilt, American quilt making as the most advanced abstract form of popular art production in the history of civilization. Um, on the other hand, uh, he, he was a besotted with uh, with Western modernist painting at the same time and and uh, wrote uh, kind of luscious prose about about impressionism um, so he is uh, he's a kind of omnivorous consumer of, of, of culture um, trying to plot out I think Turkey's place in uh, both a what to him at the time was a contemporary moment of the 1950s but also in a, a much larger historical trajectory of uh, competing tra uh, modern art and modern cultural traditions between countries like the U.S., Turkey, uh, Great Britain, another place that he spent a lot of time. And I remember being very struck reading Edgevitz writing about art in how the very sophisticated ways that he incorporated Turkey's history into narratives about modernity and about national identity, uh, writing about Ottoman art or Ottoman poetry, for example, he could be very critical, talk about how stilted, how unnatural, uh, how removed from everyday life Ottoman art had become. And in this context, he was very eager to praise the Republican Revolution for having freed Turkish artists from this very oppressive Ottoman tradition. But at the same time he was making all these arguments, he'd also come around and say that now having been freed from this oppressive tradition, Turkey 
and Turkish artists for the very first time in the 1950s could actually go back to Ottoman art and could rediscover the abstract, for example, elements of it that in some ways made Ottoman art as modern or even more modern than anything else. And so that at this very unique moment, Egypt was positing Turkey's ability to become, let's say, uniquely modern and yet also true to its own culture as a product both of its Ottoman history and the Republican Revolution. Yeah, that's a very, uh, you see countless Turkish uh, art critics, artists, and thinkers taking recourse to countless different moments in what they identified as Turkey's far deeper history, whether it be Ottoman or even Byzantine, in order to uh, invite Turkey fully into the uh, internationalist club of abstraction. Um, and so uh, for, for Ejivit, I think often uh, uh, Ottoman art was a, a source for that, that he felt that he could, he could draw out and that he could uh, identify. I would also like to add, um, because you, you, you mentioned the nature of Ejivit's writing and his prose um, itself, that uh, these are these kinds of thinking through of Turkey's own relation to uh, various Western powers were something that he actually worked out even at the level of the language that he used himself. As I mentioned, he uh, trained as a poet, wrote as a poet as a young man, and um, uh, you can see in his writing itself this kind of sprinkling throughout um, of various um, terms, of various English terms, of various French terms, this um, real interest in uh, not just uh, updating Turkish as it had been updated through the language reforms of the 20s for the, in the name of a particularly nationalist project, but uh, kind of using Turkish in such a way to show its own sort of cosmopolitan potential um, a, a, as a language and a language through which um, he then was writing critique. And that in part is what's so amazing about Ejivet. He was, at the same time, he's running an art gallery, he was working as an art critic, he was writing poetry. Uh, when he went to North Carolina, he was writing uh, weekly columns in beautiful English. So, and since we have an audience of uh, often historians here at the Ottoman History Podcast, let me ask you a question about historiography. How did you find out so much about Ejivit's work, Ejivit's thoughts from this period? Well, some of this, uh, many of his newspaper columns in Ulus are, of course, uh, available in old issues of Ulus. So some of this was found at archives uh, and libraries in Istanbul and Ankara. But I was uh, very lucky to uh, be in touch and in, in dialogue with his widow, Rashan Ejevit, who was uh, his life partner in kind of all senses of uh, the word, a, a collaborator at these early uh, artistic endeavors in Ankara in the 50s, herself an important political figure um, up and through the early 2000s. Um, and she uh, kindly pulled out from under her bed and uh, in the company of, I would say, at least six uh, kittens, <laughs> a stack of some of his old articles, including uh, Ejivit's sort of original annotations where he would uh, vehemently uh, go through and sort of deride uh, the editorial and printing mistakes um, or the or the misspellings. Um, so uh, much of this work came out not just of a close engagement with Ejivit's writing himself, uh, the the writing he did himself, but also um, uh, an engagement in, and long conversations with his widow Rashan, um, who so so generously. Uh, shared her memories with me and her, her own experiences of, of this important um, period of time. 
And there's so much we could say about this. There's so much we could talk about in terms of Edge of its political career going forward. But maybe you could just tell us a little bit about, you know, what happened to this cultural moment that existed in the 50s that he was part of? And as well as at a personal level, how did he gradually make the transition from art to really more politics? We can really look at the question of the modern art world in Turkey in the 50s as in some sense a rise and fall narrative and uh, w- without trying to be too reductive or, 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 or too simplistic about it. There, We're on a podcast here, don't worry. <laughs> there is a moment of immense optimism with the inauguration of the Melti party system in 1950 and it's a moment um, made particularly emblematic by the opening of the first modern art gallery in Istanbul, um, Gallery Maya, uh, which is hailed by countless newspapers as uh, the one missing cultural institution that Istanbul, this cultural jewel in Turkey's crown, has not yet had. Um, but it's far from uh, solely these uh, institutions that are calling themselves galleries. There's a much wider upsurge in what you could call just independent initiatives more generally. Artists getting together, carving out uh, spaces in which to show their art. Um, and Correspondingly, uh, with this new set of sort of institutional and informal institutional frameworks, um, the rise of art criticism is really crucial here. So there's this huge, huge kind of momentum in the early 50s as the uh, ruling party, the Democrat Party, becomes increasingly oppressive during the middle of the decade, including uh, instances of press censorship um, and the like, these institutions really uh, begin to struggle. And as a matter of fact, um, uh, Ejibit's own gallery was shut down temporarily by the police um, around the time that um, the of what are known as the 1955, the pogroms of 1955, um, when uh, the gallery was targeted because it had a Greek name, a name derived from Greek mythology, which was understood somehow to be in uh, against the then prevalent anti-minority sentiment uh, uh, that was so prevalent in 1955. Um, and so this is really the story, the story of Ejevit's uh, kind of uh Burst of art criticism of these uh, other uh, institutions' own bursts of activities and their kind of uh, gradual closing down by the end of the decade um, is also one way to trace this story of uh, these political dynamics as they played out in the cultural realm. It is remarkable. I didn't realize that's why Edgewitz Gallery had been targeted. You know, here we think of him as the one who presided over the Turkish invasion of Cyprus. And yet, right, I was also struck reading his writing. I mean, after the 55 programs, he was one of the most articulate voices pointing out that this was a betrayal of what he saw as, you know, Turkey's values, what he saw, his ideals of tolerance. Yeah, and and he certainly, uh, they attempted to get the gallery back up and running, and it just never quite uh, gained traction. So, um it, it, you know, kind of a soft closing down, which I think is also telling of the immense difficulty uh, and and the immense amount of work that went into creating these private spaces open for the public in a realm and in a particularly in an art world previously so strongly dominated by the state. And again, here we're trying to limit ourselves to the 50s, but it really would be interesting to know how does this you know, what is the impact of Edge of its work in the art world going forward? How does this moment of, this flourishing moment of creativity impact, you know, Turkish art up till today? Yeah, I think the message that Edge of it offers us is a, a strong rebuttal to the claim that there is no critique 
in the Turkish art world or the Turkish cultural realm, or there is no criticism at work. Um, he is an uh, incredibly nuanced, critical voice, uh, weaving together uh, arguments about art and politics um, at, a, at an incredibly early moment that can actually, I think, in many ways, serve for a model and a, and a, a set of historical roots, I would hope, for contemporary artists or uh, thinkers working in Turkey today under uh, conditions of increasing duress. Thank you so much, Sarah Neal. Thanks so much, Nick. Uh, we would direct our listeners to the Ottoman History Podcast, where you can hear a number of other episodes. And we would also encourage you to visit the website Mid-Afternoon Map, our affiliated map website, which in this case will also have uh, a feature with many of Sarah Neal's translations of some of Ejivit's original art criticism, uh, some of his columns from the 1950s, and also some images of some of the art uh, in question. Uh, 